You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 149 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Laurie Norris. Hello, Victoria and Laurie. Hey! Hey! Before we get started today, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Victoria, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, During the day... I work in engagement for a large market research firm, and in my free time, when I am not uh, having fun with the amazing panelists of the CFP, I like to write and read and play the ukulele, though not terribly well. Thank you so much, uh, Victoria. Laurie, how about you? Hi, I am Laurie Norris. I am a perpetual grad student. when I am not spending my free time doing absolutely as little as possible because, ugh, this year um, I am on staff at the University of Georgia and I just kind of got a promotion, Woo! which means more work, which means less doing of things in my free time. Well, congratulations and I'm sorry. Yes, both of those things. Proud of you, friend. Thank you. And I am Alexis Neal. Um, I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the um, of the Christian Humanist Radio Network politics podcast, The City of Man. Um, he's on faculty at the, uh, at the university here teaching political science. I uh, dabble a little bit in adjuncting in law-related classes because I am a lawyer by training, but most of my time these days is taken up by uh, the fact that I am a, a local elected official and have been grappling with what that what that looks like and how to solve uh, the various problems that uh, are in our small community. And then also uh, I'm a homeschool mom to my two little boys and I'm gearing up for uh, the start of our second official homeschool year, which I'm actually super excited about um, because while they get to learn, I get to learn with them. And even as young as they are, there's still lots for me to learn. So I actually super love it. But that's coming up and that's kind of what's on my mind these days. All right. Um, So today our episode is going to be about the series, the television series Supernatural. Um, If you are a longtime listener, um, you may think, oh, that sounds kind of familiar. I feel like we've talked about that before. And you would be right. We did, in fact, do an episode on Supernatural. Lo, these many years ago, uh, summer of 2015, uh, episode 24. So quite a while ago. Um, that episode covered what would, what had been released thus far, uh, basically uh, seasons one through ten. Since that time, the show continued to uh, to exist and to go forward. And so now that the show has concluded, we thought it would be fitting to go back and revisit the show and see um, how things shaped up and if anything changed since our last discussion. 
So with that, uh, um, for the rest of our knowing section today, I'm going to turn it over to Victoria to sort of catch us up on um, other introductory and contextual material um, to, to, to start off before we dive into our discussion of the show. Victoria? Okay, so uh, I want to start this section by saying I'm very sorry. I can't possibly cover five seasons worth of mythology, especially in a show this mythologically dense um, in, in any kind of in-depth way. So I'm just going to mention a few important threads that relate to A, central characters and events of seasons 10 through 15, and B, the way the show treats gender and religion specifically, since those issues are what we do here at the CFP. So all of that said, four very quick points about the last five seasons. One, uh, and my favorite, Mary Winchester, Sam and Dean's mom, whose death is the catalyst for the pilot and thus basically the entire series, is miraculously resurrected by God's sister Amara. P.S. God has a sister. I wish that were more important in the universe of the show, but it's not. Uh, she's resurrected. That's a huge deal. She gets to play a larger part in Sam and Dean's universe in a way that I find very interesting. Uh, and... Speaking of uh, other relatives of important religious beings, in addition to God's sister, uh, Lucifer also has a son in this universe. His name is Jack. He becomes a surrogate son for Sam and Dean. He is a Nephilim. That's a half angel, half human. And as such, he's super, super powerful and influences a lot of important events in the last few seasons. Alexis will say more about Jack later. Uh, point three, the god of this universe, who Laurie will talk about more later, uh, is not content to play around with just a single universe on this show. Uh, we've got a multiverse going on, and there are lots and lots of other universes, but only two are really important. They are The Bad Place and Apocalypse World. The Bad Place is less important than Apocalypse World. Uh, it is a dark monster world that is accessed by Native American dreamwalkers um, and other spirits and things. And Apocalypse World is a straight-up capital A, capital U alternate universe. Uh, it's darker and drearier than our world, but still looks like a version of Earth. And it is populated by lots of doppelgangers of all of your favorite hunters, including Mary, Bobby, Charlie, and some other folks that have died some more than once at various points in the show's run. Uh, and important thing number four, uh, there is a great deal of fan divide over the events of the series finale. Uh, spoiler warning for this entire episode in general, but immediate spoiler warning, I'm going to tell you what happens in the series finale so if you don't want to know that stop listening go back and watch the finale and come back okay uh there's fandom divide over the events of the finale in which sam lives to old age has a normal life and raises a child and dean gets killed by an accident during a vampire hunt not really killed by vampires killed just sort of as a result of a vampire hunt halfway through the finale episode Lots of fans are really upset about this. 
uh, in any case, the second half of the finale episode allows for uh, a deep discussion of the show's theory of heaven. More on that later. Uh, I want to end my quick recap by saying I am fine with what happens to Sam and Dean in the finale. Uh, the exception to that being Jared Padalecki's old age makeup is just horrendous like i don't know what i don't know why they didn't have a wig or makeup budget for that but it's just like horrible uh but i am fine with this for three reasons one uh in their final hunt they save two tiny brothers from vampires this just seems circular and very nice two before Dean dies, we get one last Sam and Dean heart-to-heart, which in my opinion is the best part of every episode anyway. And three, uh, and, and the most important uh, reason that I'm fine with it, it seems fitting to me that Dean's story end with vampires because as the show progresses from season to season, Vampires have marked his evolution from a black and white thinker to a shades of gray thinker. Uh, Examples of this, Gordon in season one and Benny in season, I can't remember which season, the purgatory season is, the purgatory season, and how uh, those people teach Dean that good and evil are very complex, that it's, it's hard to say this person is only good or this person is only evil, and I think that uh, thus it's really fitting that his final lesson that uh, saving people, hunting things, the family business is also just as shades of gray and complex. Oh, that was a lot. Did I miss any big points that uh, either of you want to mention? I think you, I think you it, got it. Go, sorry. Go ahead, Laurie. Oh, I was just going to say the most important thing is the atrociousness of Sam's makeup. <laughs> It's real bad, y'all. <laughs> All right. Well, so with that, to sort of now that you're sort of situated in, in where we are in the show, um, as we did on our last uh, discussion of Supernatural, we're going to, to break the, the discussion down into how the show portrays gender and then how the show portrays uh, matters of faith. Uh, in our previous discussion um, of gender, um, and we will put a link to that in the show notes so you can go find that if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, we talked about some of the ways that the show failed to um, really rise to the occasion as far as portraying women in, in complex or nuanced ways. Uh, we, we talked about issues with uh, the fandom and their response to the appearance of some of the female characters on the show. Talked about issues with, with fridging, where um, female characters were, um, were brought in and then summarily sort of executed by the show in order to motivate um, the characters, the, the male characters in some particular way. Um, and so, so those are some of the issues that we talked about previously with regard to gender. Now, five more seasons later, um, we're going to talk about how the show has done since then. Um, have they improved? Uh, what, what have we seen with regard to the portrayal of gender on the show? And, um, and Victoria, I know you just talked, but I'm going to make you talk again, uh, because I know you have done a lot of thinking about gender on the show um, and you've actually even published an academic article specifically about gender um, and how it's portrayed on Supernatural. So can you walk us through some of the, the ways that gender has been portrayed um, in the seasons 11 through 15? Yes, I can. Thank you. Um, and, and thank you very much for referring to my article. I'm very proud of it. It is, in fact, the first 
uh, academic article I ever published, and I decided to write it uh, because I went to a supernatural convention and asked Alana Tal, who plays Joe Harbell, um, a question about the evolution of her character, um, and she said, you know, that's a really smart question. I don't think anybody has ever asked me that before. Uh, and that is the story of how I wrote my first very serious article after going to a very not serious fan convention. Uh, so I, I will talk about two characters here in terms of what seasons 10 and 10 through 15 do uh, with the women of the show. I'm going to talk about Sheriff Jody Mills. And uh, as I already mentioned, I'm going to talk about Mary Winchester. So Jody first. Uh, Jody is first introduced in the episode uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. She is the sheriff of the Sioux Falls, South Dakota Police Department, and we first meet her because she's a friend of Bobby Singer's. Uh, but in the later seasons of the show, she becomes an incredibly skilled hunter in her own right. Uh, she becomes a confidant of Sam and Dean. And most importantly for this discussion, she becomes the center of the show's small community of female hunters and a mentor to younger female hunters. There are two episodes that kind of highlight uh, Jody's evolution that I'm going to talk about, and they are uh, season 10, episode 8, Hibbing 911, and season 13, episode 10, Wayward Sisters, which is actually a backdoor pilot, uh, a, a test episode for a possible spinoff um, of a show called Wayward Sisters that did not get picked up by the CW, uh, and I'm still very sad about it. But first, uh, Hibbing 911. So Jody, as the sheriff of Sioux Falls, attends the Minnesota Dakota's sheriff's retreat and is partnered with Donna Hanscom, who we met a couple of seasons before. Sorry, I don't have the episode name. Uh, our show notes are going to be really, uh, really picky, I think. I don't have the episode name, but it's the episode where Sam and Dean go to a, um, like a, a fat shedding spa and and pose as people who work there in order to kill these fat sucking monsters so donna is there um and that's where we meet her donna is also um in the police force in hibbing 911 donna and jody are partnered with each other donna is very chipper um she is blonde and minnesotan she's uh working in hibbing and they play that accent and all the stereotypes to the hilt. Uh, I lived in Minnesota for seven years, and Donna, like, made me really angry because while people do sound like that with the A's and the don't you knows, um, Donna mispronounces not one but two towns in Minnesota over the course uh, of this episode. So not, uh, not great. Anyway. Donna and Jody are partners at this convention. Jody is surly and serious and uh, got a lot of other stuff involved. Donna is everything the opposite of that. They become friends over the course of the episode uh, because two reasons. One, uh, Donna has a terrible ex-husband, Doug, who is a fat-shaming, misogynist piece of garbage. Uh, Jody tells him off and helps Donna gain more confidence in herself, which is great. 
women sticking up for other women. Love that. And Donna and Jody over the course of this episode hunt uh, vampires together. And Donna realizes that, you know, all of these things really do exist. When Sam and Dean show up in this episode, uh, Dean tries to forbid Donna from helping them hunt the vampires. And Jody, even though they're very different and she's only known Donna for a day, stands up for her, vouches for her, tells Dean that she can handle herself. Uh, so Jody invests in this fellow female officer. She gives her confidence. She introduces her to the supernatural world and fills her in, and they become friends and support a support system for each other um, as the show continues. We see Donna a couple other times after that. Before I move on to Wayward Sisters, anybody have anything to say about that episode or... Jody or Donna thus far. I love Donna. I I don't have the connection to uh, all of the mispronounced cities, but I love that Donna is just cheerful and happy, kind of the way Charlie is at times. And it's like the show recognized that you can't be sad all the time. And so they created this glorious bubbly. She's not an idiot. She's just, she chooses to be optimistic about the world. And that's amazing. I love you, Donna. Yeah, I, I agree. And we should say, um, Donna is played by the wonderful comedic actress, Brianna Buckmaster, um, who everyone should follow on social media because she posts amazing pictures all the time. Okay. Uh, if there's nothing else about Donna or that episode, I also want to, in talking about Jody, talk about the backdoor pilot for Wayward Sisters. Um, that is a reference to Carry On Wayward Son by Kansas. Um, you would think that they would call it Wayward Daughters, given that, but they don't for some reason. Um, as everyone knows, Carry On Wayward Son is sort of the unofficial theme song of Supernatural. So Wayward Sisters tells us about four young female hunters who end up coming under Jody's wing and being mentored by her. Uh, they are, briefly, Alex, who Jody saves from a vampire nest. Again, so many vampires uh, in season nine. Claire Novak, daughter of Jimmy Novak, who is uh, Castiel's human vessel. Kaya, a Native American dreamwalker, and Patience, a psychic who is also the granddaughter of uh, Missouri Mosley from season one's uh, episode Home, played by the great and good Loretta Devine. So these four young women uh, sort of all fall under Jody's purview for various reasons. Uh, in this episode, it I think is a really great backdoor pilot. It does all the things a backdoor pilot needs to do because it introduces new characters and a new set of situations while also maintaining continuity um, of the show. Uh, the episode of Monsters are a family of werewolves. Uh, Claire kills the werewolves and saves a little girl. And we see Claire embody a scene we've seen Sam and Dean do dozens of times. She sits in her car and observes a reunion between the child she has saved and her mother. 
And then uh, Jody calls and tells Claire, quote, it's Sam and Dean. They're missing. They're on a hunting trip, and I haven't heard from them in a few days. Uh, Eagle-eared listeners will note that that is almost a word-for-word pilot callback of what happens when Dean comes to get Sam and tells him that they need to go look for John. So, um, because everything circles around, Claire and Alex and Patience and Jody look for Sam and Dean. And eventually, you don't need to know everything else that happens in the episode except to say that they save them, they do great, they beat the monsters, uh, they fight much more in the episode than Sam and Dean do. Sam and Dean are grateful. Uh, Jody says, you guys take care of the world, we will take care of Sioux Falls, and uh, Dean responds, damn right. So Sam and Dean are on board with these group of women being awesome and being hunters in their own town by themselves. And the episode ends with Claire writing in her own hunter's journal. Um, We don't see a lot of people on the show have journals except for uh, Sam and Dean and them using John's. But Claire has her own. And then the voiceover says that these amazing women who save Sam and Dean are, quote, her family. So all of these things make sense in universe. Uh, And the fans love it, too. The Backdoor Pilot gets a 75% audience rating and 100% critics rating from Rotten Tomatoes. But despite this, uh, the CW says no thanks, um, that it is not creatively mature enough. And what do they pick up instead? They pick up a spinoff of a spinoff of the Vampire Diaries. Womp, womp. Um, let's see. Uh Okay, that's all I'm going to say about Jodi. Um, I think it's very important that she becomes a mentor to other women. I feel like this is an improvement because you get to kind of see the future of the world of hunting. You get an expansion of community uh, that is specifically female, and that feels very important to me. What do you ladies think about that episode and Jodi in general? I think that episode, um, while I haven't watched it because it's 15 years and I'm tired, um, I do love Jody and I caught on to some of the characters afterwards. Uh, my biggest takeaway with specifically with like the Jodies and the Donnas and the Claire and Alex's of it all, because I'm very familiar with them from the seasons I have seen, is the show after Krepke leaves, the show kind of realizes how much it bridges women and, and like, can we, let's, uh, let's pause for a second. Um, let's pause for a second and say, um, Kripke is creator Eric Kripke, who leaves after season five, um, is no longer showrunner. And Laurie, tell us what fridging is. So fridging is a term from comics. Uh, I cannot remember the specific comic book. Uh, that it happens, but the superhero comes home one day and discovers that his lady love has been murdered and shoved inside a refrigerator, and that spurs him on to revenge. And um, that's all that women are for, is to die and inspire a man to do something great. And Supernatural begins with the fridging of Mary, 
and then and Jessica, Mary and, and Jessica. Jessica. All right. I forgot about Jessica. How did I forget about Jessica? Oh my God. Everybody gosh. forgets about Jessica. The show forgets about Jessica too. It's fine. Oh man. Sorry, Jessica. Oof. I just did it again. But so the show is built upon the suffering of women and how that inspires men. And then for several years only has femme fatales or really great women that they murder like Joe. Um, they try to get away from that a little bit with Charlie in later seasons. Um, and it's okay. It's okay. She can be on the show. She's queer. She's not going to interrupt your, your slash fiction about the brothers. Um, yeah, she's a, she's not a threat to the fantasy lives of the fans of the show because she is overtly uh, a lesbian and she jokes about it and Dean jokes about it and everybody jokes about it. And it's kind of obnoxious. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense that uh, Charlie functions as, like, their little sister, which is charming and fits in, but also is not enough. And as the show progressed and they went through showrunners, because there's been quite a few in the last ten years, oh, my Lord, um, I think Jody and then Donna specifically are an attempt to defridge to have women like Jody's introduced with some really traumatic backstory, but she isn't always waiting for the boys to save her. She has so much agency from the beginning. And Donna is the exact opposite of, of, of Dean. So she has her own positive energy and agency. And then when they start introducing the second generation of young women and specifically there are only young women, really there aren't um, teenage boys populating this show. These young women also all have their own sense of agency, which is separate entirely from any sort of sexual relationship with the brothers. Um, one, so you can have your slash fiction and not be creeped out. But I think it is an active stance from the showrunners in later seasons to be like, no, this is a horrible trope. We are guilty of it, and we are going to try to be better. And then you have the CW who says, oh, no, that's not what we like. We want our vampires so sexy. Yeah, which is why, I mean, first of all, everything you said about agency and female community is spot on amazing. Uh, but I, I think that, like, that's why I'm so disappointed about the Wayward Sisters um, the, the fact that the network doesn't believe in it because the fans didn't always believe in that for female characters on this show either. And the fans come around on it. And to, to see that kind of change and that acceptance of well-rounded agency-led female characters happen in a very territorial fandom – um, only to have the network sort of still believe in these outdated gender norms is just incredibly disappointing. It is. It's really disappointing. And now that you're talking about it, I'm starting to see also um, a change in the a core, a, a parallel change in the, the toxic nature of the brothers relationship. At the same time, they start introducing these women who are powerful and self-assured the brothers partially because everyone was getting tired of every uh, the brothers just lying to each other and keeping secrets for needless drama. Um, 
the brothers start to become more honest with each other and more like physically affectionate with each other. It's, it's a very powerful and pretty subtle kind of change in such an established show to see late on an actual head on engagement with toxic masculinity and the way that it affects all the, all genders present. And yeah, that's a a fantastic point. And I think you're right. Um, I will say that in my discussion of gender, I'm mostly focusing on the women of the show, but you're right that the, that Sam and Dean eventually embody a kind of emotionally vulnerable um, masculinity. And part of that, I think, is because they are being romanticized by and viewed as non-threatening to a primarily female, primarily heterosexual fan base. But um, it's not all that, particularly the Dean Castiel uh, friendship and how it evolves over the course of the show speaks to that. Um, season one, Dean, for example, when he says uh, no chick flick moments in season one, season 15, Dean would never say no chick flick moments. Uh, so I, I think that's a, an interesting uh, evolution there as well. But yeah, is I it, will, isn't it in, like, it's somewhere in season, maybe season 15, season 13, but at some point, Dean admits that he loves chick flicks. Yes. He's, is it Beaches that he said? I, he, he shouts something out. I can't remember. But, yeah, I, I remember when that happened, I was like, oh, they, they waited a long time to, to put that one in. Yeah. I wonder, and this is, this is something that I have had in my head, like, just watching the show. I wonder if it's not the presence of Mary Winchester that allows the show to to do that with the boys. Yes. Okay. Fantastic segue. Thank you. Uh, Let's, let's talk about Mary. Mary is resurrected at the end of season 11 for a while. It's awesome. She becomes a main character right alongside her sons. They talk and they bond and they hunt together. Uh, And also very importantly, she hunts by herself and does it very well. Um, It's important to note here, I think, that it's Mary, not John, that gives the boys their hunter bloodline. Uh, John is a member of the legacy organization, the Men of Letters, which is like supernatural researchers, basically. So what you get from this is that Dean is, I'm generalizing, more like Mary, while Sam is more like John. But I think it's very important that it is Mary, their mother, who is the skilled hunter um, before she gets married, before her children are born. Uh, That thing that is a center of their identity comes from her. Uh, In fact, Apocalypse World, Mary is like general of all the hunters and is running stuff and making decisions. Uh, As I said, in regular universe, she works her own cases. Um, But I want to talk about one episode in talking about kind of a later show, Mary, and that is uh, episode 13, episode, sorry, uh, episode 13 of season 14, Lebanon. So uh, it's called Lebanon because it's set in Lebanon, Kansas, where Sam and Dean's uh, fancy hunter bunker is located. The center of the episode is they find this magic pearl that grants your deepest desire. Um, They think that their deepest desire 
is to get the angel Michael out of Dean's head. More on that in our religion section. It turns out that their deepest desire is that they want their dad back. So in this episode, John comes back. It's a huge deal. Uh, partly it's a huge deal just because it's really cinematic and beautiful. Um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Samantha Smith have wonderful chemistry. Their reunion is touching and romantic. Uh, the look in his eyes when he sees her again for the first time in however many years is just, it makes me weak in the knees. I watch it like every six months. It's beautiful. Um, and... Eventually, it turns out that uh, because they're playing with timelines, they can't uh, they can't have both Mary and John be alive and have done all of the things that they did to save the world. He sacrifices himself and leaves at the end of the episode so that she can stay. And also in the episode, we get a huge, huge amount of closure and evolution for John. Um, he tells both Sam and Dean that he's proud of them. He apologizes for being kind of a jerk and a bad dad when they were kids. They all reconcile. It's very John-centric. Uh, and all of this would be okay because all the big loose ends are tied up. The men continue to be self-sacrificing heroes. Uh and all of that would be fine, except that after she has been uh, magically resurrected and done all this cool stuff and showed that she is not just as good a hunter as her husband and sons, but maybe a better one, she dies again for a final irrevocable time only five episodes later. Um, basically for no real reason other than to put the plot forward she's basically refridged um what happens is that she's on a hunt with jack who is as i said a nephilim he's very very strong and she is talking too much and telling him that he needs to think about stuff and he wishes that she would be quiet and leave him alone exact words direct quote uh and then he powers her out of existence so it's just, it's awful. He wants her to shut up and go away and be quiet and not nag so much, and then she dies again. It's terrible. I hate it. Samantha Smith deserved better. The universe of this show deserved better. The fans deserve better. I hate it. I have a question about that. So. Okay. Okay. So that is demonstrably and objectively poopy. Is it Chuck's fault? Can we blame the really crappy death, again, of Mary Winchester on God? Can we? That is also an excellent segue. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about religion. <laughs> um. All right. So it sounds like from our discussion of gender that we have seen some forward um, improvement in the show uh, with the way that women are portrayed. Um, so um, with with the mention of God, we can shift a little bit and talk about faith. Some of the things we talked about last time with faith um, were the fact that um, religion has truth claims that are either actually true or actually false. Um, what, 
would seem like faith coming from you or I is not actually faith when it comes from Dean because he's actually seen it. Um, and then we talked a lot about how the Winchesters were initially a sort of picture of the prodigal son um, parable and uh, with, a, with a faithful older brother and a younger brother going away and struggling with their relationship with the father. A lot of things that were um, reminiscent of spiritual themes. Uh, and then when we had the supernatural and the, the angelic universe introduced, um, they decided to make angels and God a reflection of Sam and Dean. So we talked about some of those things last time. So then now, five seasons later, we've gotten a lot more about the angels and God, um, specifically God um, as as an author. So, Laurie, do you want to talk about um, about God, the author? So badly, so badly do I want to talk about God, the author. Um, I am going to do one of my famous caveats there might be some moments that sound stuttery. That is me attempting not to swear. I have strong feelings about Chuck. Part of the reason I have such strong feelings about Chuck is because I've been in graduate school for <clears throat> years. And I have been in so many graduate classes with a Chuck, a privileged white guy who probably writes poetry who thinks he knows the answers to everything and decides to mansplain you your own work back at you. He's the worst. And Chuck is very clearly modeled on that particular type of obnoxious guy in every creative writing workshop you'll ever be in. He's supposed to be insufferable. He's supposed to be the worst in these later seasons. When you look at him, his introduction in um, the Kripke era as Chuck Shirley, writer of the Supernatural series, as a prophet of God, he's a squirrely little dude. He's a beta male to balance out the alpha Winchesters. But comic relief, um, it's almost like when they stumble upon the idea that Chuck is actually God and God has been writing the life story for for the Winchesters and they don't really have any free will in any of this. Um, I don't think they meant to make Chuck as absolutely insufferable as, as he becomes, but I think they decide to lean into it as a storytelling device. So in these later seasons, um, he's the first time we start to get a sense of Chuck as a failing author, like, his writer's block is itself a really big dramatic narrative point in the show is he doesn't he's getting bored and he doesn't know what else to do with creation. He has in I think it is season 11 it, um, when Metatron, the scribe of God, played by. Um, oh, what's his name? Curtis. Uh the guy from Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. I'm sorry. Curtis Armstrong, you have a name and you're not Booger. You are Curtis Armstrong. So Curtis Armstrong plays Metatron and Metatron is kind of, um, he's a villain. He's never an anti, he's never a hero. He's never an anti-hero. Sometimes he's an ally. Um, he's having a crisis of faith for, uh, we don't need to know why, but while at his lowest point, he meets God, God sort of saps him into this, magical bar and uh, they get to know each other and they have what can only be described as a writer's retreat 
where they they get excited about telling stories again and uh god god is like oh yeah it's so great to have an audience who loves me eventually through the course of that episode metatron starts to realize that chuck is basically a liar and um not a good person uh is this is where we have the seeds of chuck as the ultimate villain really coming into play so when you come into the end of season 14 at at uh mary's death and the the huge conflict that that creates between the brothers and Jack, their surrogate son. Castiel is more Jack's surrogate father. So it also makes conflict between the brothers and their very bestest angel friend. God pops in to be like, ha ha, it's all me. Look, I wrote this story. And collectively everyone groans. Um, and that sets up the narrative of season 15. Like the closing of the show is God saying, you guys suck. You won't follow my rules. You won't give me the ending that I want. So now I am just going to make all of existence miserable because you won't let me have my story. And God's story, Chuck's story, I think it's important to distinguish Chuck from any sort of God as a title. Um, Chuck's story is, I just want brothers to kill each other. He did it with Cain and Abel. He's doing it with Sam and Dean. He really, he's a one trick pony. And Dean, especially, but Sam also start to push back. Their entire existence becomes, no, we have to stop Chuck from ruining people's lives just for his own amusement. And I, I think the full on villain turn comes in, uh, a pretty important episode where where just the horrible creative writer of it all um, is at its peak. It's called Atomic Monsters in season 15. Um, I think it's the fourth episode. So while the brothers and Castiel are off doing things, Chuck shows up at Becky's house. And Becky is the supernatural super fan from back in the Kripke era. And she has moved on with her life. She still loves the show and she's making a living doing fan art off of it. So there is still a meta supernatural, uh, uh, like fandom within the show. And God steps back into it, desperate to have an audience, desperate for someone to tell him he's great. And when Becky actually looks at the story he's writing and, and gives him legitimate critical feedback, like constructive criticism, he blinks her entire family out of existence and then blinks her out of existence to say, uh-uh, no, you're wrong, woman. I've got this right, and let me make this dark and evil. And I don't know if you can tell, but I hate Chuck. I kind of got the feeling that you don't care for Chuck. Not at all, no. Chuck is the worst. Uh, he's... He's annoying because, like you said, Lori, he, like, has had this one job for, like, thousands of years, and he doesn't seem to be particularly good at it, and he doesn't seem to like it, like, he's bored, so he's not great at it, he's not being fulfilled by it, 
But instead of, like, I don't know, doing something else and handing over the reins to somebody who's either more competent or more fulfilled by ruling the universe, he just pouts because he doesn't get his way and he's angry. Yes, exactly. When presented with Amara, his sister, who is introduced as supposedly um, darkness to his light, but really comes across as reason to his petulance. Um, she's, she proposes that these two cosmic beings can just exist in balance for a while. And his answer is essentially, no! And he tricks her and subsumes her into himself like a creep. And so Supernatural Dunham are wrong, too. <sighs> well, I think one of the things that struck me as I was watching the whole Chuck arc um, is as I'm as I was watching it thinking, okay, how does this how do I see in this reflections of how how the world sees the God of Christianity? And there would be sort of shimmers here and there where I'd be like, this is this is what this is the best that, that, that these, these writers can make of the idea of a God who is sovereign, or this is the best that, that the writers can make of a God who is deeply invested in his own glory. Um, there, there is no, because there is no human analog for that because none of us are God. Um, the only thing we could think of is what if we knew a person who was deeply invested in, in their own glory. Um, and where, where I think as Christians, we would say it is good and right that God seeks glory, like it will be glorified. Um, and that that is a priority for him. He does things throughout the Bible and says, I do this for my own glory. Um, in a way that would be, would, wouldn't, it wouldn't work coming from a person without feeling yucky. Um, and so I think I just, I was, as I was watching it, being like, man, they're really, they're struggling. They're struggling to try and think of what does it look like for God to be sovereign and how in the world can that not be God's just a big selfish jerk? Um, which was a little bit distasteful, but I also realized like if you don't, if that's not what you believe, I understand that, that to some degree that's going to be, um, that's going to be foolishness um, to you. Um, and so as I was watching him, that was that was a lot of what I was was thinking of. And, and you have, so you then have this this whole plot line of, of Dean is willing to go to any lengths to to kill God, to to remove God from his throne, because um, that's a new and novel idea and not one as old as history itself, um, because he doesn't want God to be sovereign. He wants to be free of of the rule of of God. Um and, and like you said, Laurie, Chuck bears no resemblance to um, to the God of the Bible. Um, but I just I felt like, man, this is this is what somebody was thinking when someone else explained to them some of the theology of, of Christian of, of Christian theology about God. And this is this is what it looks like. This is when they when they kick it back out as a story. This is what it looks like, um, which was was disheartening. But it, it it made a certain amount of sense to me that like, yeah, this is not. Not something that's going to make sense to um, to someone who's not in that faith tradition or who came out of that faith tradition and no longer associates with it. Um, so I thought that was really, uh, really interesting. Um, anything else about Chuck before we talk a little bit about Jack? I would like to add one, one quick thing about, like, building off of what you're saying about the disconnect between a Christian view of God and this narrativized view of God. I think this is what you get of God made in man's image. Mm -hmm. And it is 
the problem, uh, the Christian God is is ulti- ultimately unknowable, which is why there is a Christ. Right. And this show right. has no space for a Christ figure no. at all, unless it's Dane. Right. Right. Because there's no Jesus, there's no grace, there's no redemption. Uh, there's only vindictiveness and rules and, and thou shalt not. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And we talked about that before, even in our previous episode about angels, how everything is reduced. Um, and, and, and it would be a very different show if they were actually trying to portray something transcendent and beyond comprehension. But, but the angels are just petty humans with more power. And it's not super surprising that, that Chuck is also just a, a petty human with more power. Um, uh, do we want to talk a little bit about the shift in um, what his role is in the universe? Um, initially, at the very beginning of the series, uh, there's a lot of talk about the the absence of God. Um, uh, we talked about this in our previous episode, but as John is the uh, estranged, distant father, um, and, and the brothers are trying to get his approval and trying to have a relationship with him, but he is distant and they're left to follow his orders, so too the angels haven't seen God in however many millennia and are left to try and follow his orders. Um, uh, Laura, you mentioned the, the the pitting of brothers against each other. We have the angelic brothers, Lucifer and Michael as well. But the, the arc of God in the initial early seasons is very much as the absent father. Um, and there's a lot of, of outcry about how unjust and unfair and unloving that is. Um, it's very different from Chuck, the annoying writer who is trying to force uh, his creation to behave in a certain way. Um, at what point do you think that Chuck makes that transition or is it all, is he always the same and just, they understand him differently at one point in time? That's a really good question. And I think that the show actually changes its own answer to that somewhat. Um, I, my my view is that they lean into Chuck as author more and more towards the end of the show. Um, once the guy, the boys start to make peace with themselves, and uh, once they're aware of the the meta nature of their reality, um, and start to push against that. The the tropes that God, the writer, had introduced in the first few years are are no longer working. um, And that's why we have season 15 is because the the boys chafe at these and they refuse to, to abide by the narrative imposed. And I think the show didn't really follow that in the beginning, but found it towards the end. And I I think that they kind of wrote themselves into God the jerk after God the absent father. Once Sam and Dean start to make a sort of peace with themselves and with their their role in the world, Um, they stop trying to just live in John's shadow or out of it depending on which brother you're talking to and when they become more bonded and also when they develop a larger social network, a a larger support network, um, the show one needs a villain, but also because they're resisting the narratives that 
God, the absent father author had laid out and gotten bored with and abandoned. He's finally noticing, hey, these things aren't working the way that I I laid them out to. That's when they le- the show leans into God as villain. Well, and part of the reason that I asked is because of where the show ends up with the, the role of God. Um, so Victoria has mentioned a couple of times um, we have the, the, the character of Jack that is introduced. Um, Jack is the offspring of Lucifer, the archangel, and human Kelly. Um, and uh, there's a whole story arc about whether or not this is going to be the worst thing that ever happened. And we have to prevent this, uh, the birth of this Nephilim. Um and Castiel is is very supportive of uh, of Kelly, um, the the mother, and we have the, the birth of this child Jack, uh, who who rapidly ages to be um, I guess a sort of a, a late teenager uh, age, and then is added to the Winchester circle. And I I actually really liked the Jack storyline. I thought well, first of all, the actor I thought was brilliant casting. He he looked like Castiel. Part of the the arc was would he be truly Lucifer's son? Uh, because that's his biological father, or would he be Castiel's son, who cared for his mother during the pregnancy and who protected her and who she said basically looked to Castiel as your father. So initially when, when Jack is, is born and reaches uh, his adulthood, there's a lot of concern about what, who's, who is going to tr- prove to be his true father. Um, and he looks, he looks a lot like Castiel. He has a lot of mannerisms similar to Castiel, and I, I just thought he did a really good job with, with the acting. And I found him as a fascinating character because he's he's really the closest thing we see to a a good and pure character, at least in, in initially, um, even in a way that I'm not sure Castiel ever was. Castiel was dutiful uh, and obedient, but Jack seems to be sort of unsullied uh, in a way that, that I'm not even sure Castiel really ever was. Um, and we just hadn't seen very much of a, of a good character. Um, he's very innocent. Um, he is he is accepted eventually into the Winchester circle. They they have this unconventional family essentially where he has three dads: Castiel, uh, Dean, and Sam. Kind of all are, are father figures to him. Uh, he admires Dean probably the most. It has the the the, uh, the strongest connection I think to Castiel. Um, he as a character runs them into sort of the Superman problem. Um, he is so powerful that you have to do something else with him. Otherwise, every episode is and then Jack saves the day. Um, so at various points, uh, he is sick. Uh, the use of his powers will um, notify their enemies of their presence. Um, he loses his soul for a time, and that undermines that inherent goodness that he possesses. And now he's powerful and potentially not good um, and introduced as a potential villain. Um, so I, just, I thought he was a very interesting piece of the story, not least because he seemed to be a character that was introduced into the Winchester family and stuck. We've had various people that they sort of say are like family. And then the question is, but but are they really? Would they really die for this person? Um, and a lot of times the answer has been no. It's always come back to just Sam and Dean. And then Castiel were, you know, got his way in there and, and really became another person that they, weren't gonna, they were not going to lose if they could at all help it. And, and Jack seemed to be elevated to that point as sort of their, all of their adoptive son. Um, and... Um, which, which was disappointing because after Jack accidentally, sort of accidentally kills Mary, um, Dean basically does not forgive him for a very, very long time, even after Jack is re-ensouled and repentant and just weeping openly over this mistake that he made that was was momentary and a function of the power that he had. And probably there have been times that Dean had wished that Mary would just go away, but the rest of us, when we wish someone would go away, they don't actually cease to exist. Um, 
So it was a little frustrating that Dean wouldn't forgive him. But um, anyway, we see in Jack a lot of the similar themes we've, we've seen before. He intends to save the day by sacrificing himself um, to to kill God. Um, and, and in a sense, he does sacrifice himself, even though he lives at the very end. He has taken over the role of God. And as a result, Sam and Dean no longer have Jack in their lives the way that they did. Um, and Jack does not have them the way that he did. He is he is. Uh, ascended to this higher plane to be this this god person um and so they they're in a real sense i would assume would feel a lot of mourning about that that they no longer have him uh, in their life that way but what i think is particularly relevant to this conversation is the kind of god that jack says he's going to be um you don't have to pray to me basically i'm not going to meddle people can solve their own problems and and you don't like i'll be somewhere, but you don't, I'm not going to be super involved, essentially, is what, what he says. Uh, we do find out that he makes some changes in heaven, which I'll talk about in a minute. But essentially, what we have is a return to an absent father. And the brothers celebrate this because it's they see it as freedom from the interfering and controlling Chuck. But it's essentially celebrating a reset back to the early days when they still were surrounded by suffering and monsters and death and violence and all of these things, because people solving their own problems doesn't mean there aren't problems. There's still cancer. There's still vampires. There's still werewolves, all of that. Um, and in fact, we see, you know, Dean dies in, like you said, in an accident during a, a werewolf fight. So I don't know if it's supposed to be a sign of maturity that what they chafed at at the beginning, they've come to realize is actually the, the best they can hope for, uh, a benevolent but absent God, or if it's just an inconsistency because they were so into the headspace of Chuck as the evil writer um, that they, they weren't really thinking about, wait a minute, like we still had really awful stuff happen when God was absent. Like we had the apocalypse when God was absent. Like we had a lot of terrible things um, when God was absent. So um, that's that's part of what I wasn't sure about with with Jack um, and, and whether or not it was an improvement over the first seasons to have an absent Jack. I mean, I guess absent Jack is better than absent Chuck just because Jack seems to still be good. But do you guys have specific thoughts on Jack as the new God and what, what that tells us about the view of faith? I did have a question about the, like, the Jack. And so in the second to last episode, I was watching it and wondering if while Jack is trying to say, I'll be wherever I'll be everywhere. You don't have to pray to me. It felt like uh, a a sort of God is everything. God is always all around you. And so God can't really be absent. You don't need to call on God because God is always already there but it didn't, to me, really feel like the show earned it. Or maybe they just didn't. Um, they're, true, they're so reliant on like anthropomorphized figures that you can actually have a conversation with that a much more esoteric God is everything um, didn't land. Victoria, what do you think? I agree. I um, in, in my notes... Uh, I have two phrases after the kind of Jack God, I'll be right here, uh, <laughs> uh, declaration, and they are spiritual but not religious cop-out and just, ugh, in giant letters. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think I think it's trying to eat its cake and have it, too, um, spiritually, in a, in a way that is very 
not satisfying to me. That's my feeling. And I think you're right, Laurie, that some of it has to do with the, the being used to the characters being characters, that it, it's hard to imagine it being satisfying to have them just be impersonal, because really that's that's what, what you're talking about. Um, again, I kept coming back to like, oh, well, that's too bad. Like, they don't get to be friends with Jack anymore. Like, Jack is gone. There is no Jack. There is now this new being that is God, that is maybe got some resemblance to Jack, but he, Jack is gone. Jack has been changed, and they've lost him. Um, and that that was just that was just sad. Um, and um, and he lost them. Like his relationship to them um, was was different. Uh, and so I think that's a lot of what made it unsatisfactory for me was that we had gone from relationships that were very personal to a relationship that was not going to be personal. That wasn't going to be we know him and are known by him, but just sort of this, like you said, spiritual but not religious, fuzzy, vague force. Um, and there was no real mourning of their loss because right, right before that Castiel sacrificed himself too. Like he, uh, mythology, mythology, mythology saved the, saved Dean's life by going into the empty and taking the, Mm -hmm. you sound like a crazy person when you try and describe this show without context, but like (laughs) their very best friend smiled and said that, perfect happiness for me was getting to know you Peace, and then disappears for all eternity. And then their child is like, Oh, so, Hey, I'm God now. Uh, hippie stuff. Uh, peace out. And I'm also taking that lady that you were close to. She and I, we're just going to go somewhere else. You're on your own. And then you have Sam and Dean. They're like, job well done. End of episode. And then the next episode starts, and they're like, hey, you want to kill a vampire? Yeah, let's kill a vampire. Let's take a minute to acknowledge this, people. This is – this show does not have a good track record of dealing with its own trauma, but come on. I needed to mourn. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that fits with the way that they dealt with with Jack, just sort of inconsistent as to whether he was really part of the family or not. Um, And so – that, that there's some some inconsistency there as to what kind of send off um, he needs, and I know practically like they only had so many episodes, so they couldn't you know they didn't have a whole other episode to do about getting over the the people that they had lost. And part of it is because they hadn't you know, he hadn't died, but I mean really he, he did he did he is no more that that character was no more. So um, one thing that that Jack does do, and I will say this is one thing that I thought that the show did well um, with regard to faith is he changes heaven um, in the previous depiction of heaven heaven was basically you're in your own isolated little space away from everyone else and you're in your best memories on loop so you have heaven like the the best the 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 most wonderful thing that you can have is to die and go to heaven and be in in your own memories on loop away from everybody else and the only version of them that you interact with is your memory of them but they're not real people Uh, i don't think you could generate any new memories other than if someone accidentally showed up in your heaven which did happen a few times but as far as heaven as it was set up to be, was just you reliving the best days of your past, um, which by definition, because we all live on Earth, like the best days of your past are still not going to be that great because it's going to be taking place on a fallen Earth and all of these things. But that was heaven. Um, and what Jack does is basically he knocks down all of the walls and lets people be together in heaven and their heaven is to be with each other. Um, and I, I really did like that idea of, of 
the, the fellowship of heaven, not just the, the pleasure of positive memories and looking backward, but the fellowship and the potential to create new memories going forward. So we get to see uh, Bobby and we get to see Sam and Dean reunited um, after um, after Sam's death, which in a nice touch is not very long after Dean's arrival because time works differently. So Sam lives out his entire you know to old age and Dean's been waiting for like, I don't know, half an hour or something. Um, and so they're reunited. And the idea is that all of the characters that we've loved are all, they all get to be together again in heaven. Um, and that idea of, of activity and, and togetherness and fellowship, I just, it, it felt a lot more dynamic than a lot of portrayals of heaven. Honestly, even from Christian sources can be, it's not perfect. It obviously does not have heaven being about God, um, and glorifying God. Um, and you still have, Hey, it's Dean in heaven. What are the chances he's not going to sin and hurt someone in some way? Um, there's not there's not sanctification. They're all still fallen humans. Um, and so putting all these people together, maybe there aren't vampires hunting them, but people do a great job of hurting each other just fine, including Dean. Um, so it's it's incomplete um, and certainly not, um, not biblical, but I, I did feel like it was more satisfying than a lot of the way that heaven is portrayed in um, in literature and pop culture. Uh, did you guys have thoughts on the portrayal of heaven? I I agree with you, Alexis. I think, I mean, of course, there's no grace, there's no Jesus, there's no sanctification, and that's certainly a lesser vision of heaven than the one that we all um, hope to go to and, and hold in our hearts. But given that this is a TV show that is not Christian, that was never going to be Christian, and given that this is a TV show that first and foremost has always from the beginning been about family and community and wanting the best for the people that you love i think it it is the heaven that the show needs and deserves yeah if if we can't have an actual heaven heaven where we get to spend all of eternity glorying in god and god's magnificent creation and just the unadulterated joy that that would bring i'll take driving the impala forever through uh british columbia it's a fair trade-off with bobby i'm so happy it was so happy to see bobby <laughs> yes um, i yes yes jim beaver is the greatest yeah and that's and I, I should say too that one of the other things that, that they did try to do, you could feel them doing through the final seasons, was trying to bring in various characters and try to give them a send off, as they did with John uh, in the episode that you mentioned, Victoria, and as they've done with a lot of other characters. Not everybody got one. Um, some of the characters they they had left dead and they weren't they weren't brought back for for a goodbye episode, and that was sad for some of those characters that I particularly loved. But they did try to um, to bring people back, or at the very least include them in the montage that they had in the was it the second second to last episode or the last episode where they did a montage of just moments from throughout all 15 seasons. Um, all right. So on that heavenly note, I think, uh, do we have anything else before we move to passing on? I have a question. Um, and this is part of it is my memory, but did they ever, the, sh the episode ever acknowledge whether or not, um, Charlie and, uh, Bobby and Donna were unzapped out of existence because I I was really like when Charlie's partner disappears while after making the world's most perfect eggs like that was a gut punch and I 
honestly cannot remember if they even tossed off a line and said, and then everybody was fine. They they don't have a line like that, but if I remember, and Victoria, you can correct me if I have this wrong, but basically by the time they have their, their showdown with God, they're I think they're like the last people on Earth. And so you do see the streets populated again um, after Jack takes on the mantle of God. So my my interpretation of that was that some of those people are back. They don't. I don't think they tell us who. So I don't know what happens with Eileen, for example. Um, oh man! But, if we had all the time in the world, I would talk about Eileen for a year. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm hearing is we need to have a part three to our series. On no, no, no. So here's um, here's what we're gonna do, listeners. Because we don't have time for a lightning round on air. Uh, what we're going to do is in the show notes, each of us is going to include our lightning round, one character episode, something, one piece of the show that we think you should check out. So uh, double passing on, but only in the show notes. Wonderful. All right. Speaking of passing on, let's go ahead and transition to that. Laurie, what would you recommend for our listeners? All right, because fridging is the basis, the foundation, the the raison d'etre of this show, I'm going to recommend a book that uh, flips that on its head and um, presents to you existence from the perspective of the fridged. It is The Refrigerator Monologues by Catherine M. Valente. With illustrations by the brilliant, the wonderful, the supremely talented Annie Wu. So it's not, it's not a comic, but it's got enough of her drawings in there to be like, oh, this is a new Annie Wu comic. Oh, she, she might be one of my favorites. So, um, Refrigerator Monologues is set in Dead Town and follows, uh, the misadventures, sort of of a, a woman named Paige who was the fridged girlfriend, love interest of a superhero, uh, kid Mercury. And, um, it's the story it's through her perspective and it's about her and some of the other women in dead town who just, they never get a chance to go back to the world because there's crazy, the crazy scientist who figures out a resurrection spell just doesn't make it work. You know, it's of, it's about what happened to the women once they were used up by the superhero trope. And uh, it's delightful. Wonderful. Um, Victoria, what's your recommendation for us? Uh, so my recommendation is connected to the fact that one of the things I love the most about Supernatural, probably the thing I love the most about it, because really I think out of, 15 seasons there are maybe six and that's probably pushing it truly good ones uh but i'm terrible at quitting things because the show on balance is mediocre even though i love it my favorite thing is the community uh the hashtag spn family it's called uh this fandom is voracious and insane and wonderful and cares for each other and thus i am recommending uh, always Keep Fighting, which is Jared Padalecki's mental health charity uh, that has been adopted by the hashtag SPN family uh, as one of its biggest causes. 
Uh, Always Keep Fighting is great. The merchandise is good and fun, but more than that, it is about uh, valuing mental health and telling each other that we are not alone in the world, uh, which I think is a very valuable thing to know, especially from a Christian feminist perspective. Wonderful. Thank you for that recommendation. And uh, my recommendation is for people who are just looking for ways to add more supernatural fiction to their lives. Um, there is a series of, I think they're probably technically young adult books um, called the Johannes Cabal series. Um, the, uh, the author is Jonathan L. Howard. Um, there are, I think, seven books in the series now that some of them um, lean more on Lovecraftian elements. Some of them have more of a steampunk detective feel. Some of them uh, are, there's a, the first one is called Johannes Cabal, the necromancer, um, trying to make a deal with the devil and trying to figure out how to raise, uh, raise the dead. Um, and uh, the humor is, um, is very British, I think. And uh, it owes a lot to Neil Gaiman's Good Omens, which of course is also, um, some of the source material for Supernatural, the show. Uh, so it has a lot of those elements. So if you like humor and the supernatural and vampires and deals with the devil and uh, Lovecraftian monsters and things like that, uh, I recommend the Johannes Cabal series and the audiobooks are also pretty good um, as well. With that, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want us to want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Laurie Norris, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in uh, in two weeks when we'll discuss the Book of Common Prayer. Until then, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.